is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. History on Capitol Hill today. Confirmation hearings begin for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court. She gave her opening statements this afternoon to the Senate Judiciary Committee. During this hearing, I hope that you will see how much I love our country and the Constitution and the rights that make us free. The questions from senators begin tomorrow. We will go in depth into the confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson. Dr. Fauci, we all remember him, is warning of an uptick in COVID cases soon, but this warning isn't necessarily full of doom and gloom. And people with medical debt are getting a big break thanks to the major credit reporting agencies. War in Ukraine raging on, Russia targeting a shopping mall, Ukraine pushing back, the military refusing to walk away from the port city Mariupol. Uh, More refugees leaving the country, though. We'll look into where they're going and if many uh, do plan to return back home. And uh, we'll go into Ukraine, Russian-occupied city of Kherson, where the troops have apparently been attacking protesters. We start, though, with the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. With us now is Karen Nance a legal and Supreme Court analyst, as well as a criminal defense attorney. Karen, thanks for being with us. Uh, right off the bat, uh, the, the, in what few comments have already been made from Republicans, they seem to be uh, aiming at, at her uh, for past decisions on the bench that they consider to be lenient. They seem to object to the fact that she was a criminal defense attorney, even though, I don't know, I thought that was like part of the system. I agree. I think what was really helpful is having her be introduced by Judge the Justice Griffith, who indicated that he is a retired federal court appeals judge, which she she sat on the court of appeals or is currently sitting, and also that he was appointed by a Republican and is a Republican by George Bush. So I think that that really kind of quiets the uh, opposition by the Republicans because we have someone on that side of the aisle who's supporting her and had very favorable things to say about her. It kind of just goes to show what we do realize with these in many cases, though, they become a proxy war for the politics because she's more than qualified. I mean, you look at the the credentials and yes, I mean, she should probably be the nominee, according to a lot of people who have um, had her name in the hat for for years and years and years. But everyone's going to try and get their 10 minutes and score their political points. I absolutely agree. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, she's this is will be her fourth time before the Senate committee. The other three times, you know, she was overwhelmingly supported and and promoted. You know, we have the district uh, judge position, court of appeals, as well as the sentencing committee. So no one has those credentials that's sat on the bench up to this point on the superior court bench. And what the de- the Republicans don't seem to point out is that you don't even need to be a lawyer. She is more than qualified, as you had indicated. And it's uh, it's it's history in the making. Every Supreme Court nominee, as you well know, uh, they like to state that they intend to be nonpartisan, that they're going to follow the law and their decisions are going to be predicated simply on the law, not partisan politics. But that isn't necessarily true, is it? I agree that when other people have spoken and and it's not been held to be true, but I think what was important by the introduction of uh, Justice Griffin, he indicated that not only have her decisions been for and against uh, individuals, they've been 
for and against um, uh, municipalities and, and other organizations. So she has shown that she can be unbiased and look at the facts of each and every case and dealt out the law the way she sees the Constitution has outlined it. So I think that there are plenty of cases she's to, to review her, right? There have been uh, district court cases as well as um, appellate court cases that she has ruled upon and that there's evidence to show that she's made decisions on both sides. Talk about the perspective she adds to this court and the president, you know, making this nomination for, for, for multiple reasons. But one of them is to make the court look more like the the nation. And she even said, you know, in her statement today that my decisions, uh, they are lengthy because I want to be as transparent as possible. And I'm going to say exactly what's on my mind and how it affects all these different groups of people that it's being decided for. I agree. I think it was awesome that we had uh, the uh, Senator Patrick Leahy say that he's uh, presided over 20 of these hearings and this makes America look like America. That was his statement uh, after she was sworn. So I think that that speaks a lot about this country and about the uh, political system and about our our government. So I think that um, we're headed in the right direction. In your view, what is her biggest strength? What is her biggest liability? I believe her biggest strength is the fact that she one um, was served under as a as a law clerk for uh, Justice Breyer. Also, uh, that she served on the sentencing committee. And there's only been two trial judges that have set, sat on the bench, her and and Justice Mayor. And in terms of the criminal setting, that would be uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall is the only other person. In terms of liability, I don't really see any negatives other than the fact that it's been pointed out that in his campaign, President Biden indicated that he would appoint a black woman, but we have a situation where Ronald Reagan said that he was going to appoint uh, a, a woman, and that was Sandra Day O'Connor, as well as President uh, President nominee Trump indicated that he would do the same, and that's how we have um, Amy Coney Barrett. So I don't think that there's anything that really sticks out other than the fact that um, people have been pointing out, specifically Republicans, that that. Biden in his campaign indicated that he was going to appoint a black woman. Karen Nance, legal and Supreme Court analyst and criminal defense attorney. COVID cases on the rise in Europe and China as the BA2 subvariant of Omicron continues to spread. Dr. Anthony Fauci warning the cases will rise soon here in the U.S., but he says that does not mean a surge is imminent. Dr. Ali Khan is dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Doctor, thanks for for being with us. So, you know, when we hear uh, Dr. Fauci uh, with the warning that there's going to be probably a uh, a, a surge of BA2 variant uh, COVID, we automatically go to that place in our heads, I think, that that means things are going to get pretty bad. But he doesn't seem to think so. Do you? Uh Thank you very much. Uh, no, I wouldn't go to that dark place in your head anymore since we have a lot more tools than we ever had to respond to this pandemic between vaccines and uh, 
antivirals and testing that's available to us. So let's step back a little bit. Uh, BA2 is already increasing in the United States. It's been, it's been increasing for the last six to eight weeks. Uh, nationally, we're up to about 25% of the viruses that they're looking at are this variant. Uh, and some parts of the U.S., specifically the Northeast, it's over 40% are already this variant. So we know the variant is increasing. However, what we've not seen yet uh, is an increase in hospitalizations or deaths or cases, actually. Uh, And so nationally, we still are seeing a decreased reporting of cases, hospitalizations and deaths. So yes, the variant may go up. That does not necessarily equate to uh, a large number of hospitalizations or deaths or that surge that we're used to. It seems to be having a slower role here than in Europe. What could explain that? Uh, this is a great question. I think this gets to the uncertainty that has defined uh, this pandemic. So let's go with the good things, right? Well, good in retrospect. Uh, lots of people vaccinated, not enough, only about 29% boosted. Those 29% or so that are boosted really are firmly protected against the severe outcomes of this disease. We also had a large surge of Omicron uh, recently, and there's no doubt that if you were recently infected, with Omicron, uh, you would be protected against this new variant of Omicron. So those would be two reasons why we may see a tempered surge in the United States. And we need to balance that against the fact that there's still a whole lot of people that are unvaccinated uh, in the United States. And we've pretty much eliminated all routine public health precautions around masking uh, and social distancing. Yes, I was actually just about to ask you about that because you're quite right. I mean, uh, all across the country, uh, people asking restaurants, movie theaters, things like that, asking for proof of vaccinations, that has dropped way down. Uh, People wearing masks, you still see them, of course, but not as much as before. But is that all such a good idea? You know, even if it ends up being not... Uh, a, a surge in the sense that we saw a surge, say, a year ago. Is it a good idea to drop all of these precautions at this time? So I'm going to give you my personal perspective here. And the answer is no, it's not a good idea because we still have over a thousand people who die every day. So essentially, we're looking at 300,000 to 400,000 deaths this year from a disease that's pretty much 100%, close to 100% uh, preventable at this point, at least the severe outcomes of hospitalization and deaths. Uh, You can prevent that with vaccination. So we have the tool here to get this down. And the 1,000 is still four times more than it was this summer. I believe this summer, we were down to 250 deaths a day, which in my mind is still too many, right? One death is too many, but I'm I'm willing to accept the fact that some people, you know, we may not be able to protect, but we're still four times more than we were this summer. Just too many, way too many. Dr. Ali Khan, Dean of the uh, College of Public Health, University of Nebraska Medical Center. Coming up, we will take a look into the changing strategies of the Russian military in Ukraine. And an English teacher in Ukraine says Russian troops have attacked protesters in one southern city. We'll go there. Right now, three biggest credit reporting agencies giving people a major break when it comes to medical debts. Removing 70 percent of medical debts from consumer credit reports comes as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau found that Americans racked up $88 billion on the credit records as of uh, June of 2021. Dean Kaplan, president of the Kaplan Group, Credit and Debt. 
debt experts. Dean, thanks for being here. So given how expensive these bills are and, uh, you know, how the majority of the time they're unexpected, this must be one of the top things that, that shows up, or at least uh, for this chunk, will used to have shown up on, on people's reports. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Mike and Charles. Uh, yes, um, over 58% of debt that gets reported to collect to uh, collection agencies is medical debt. And that's about four times larger than any other debt. So this is by far the biggest thing impacting consumer credit reports. Okay, so uh, I always think when these things get announced that there's a catch. Is there a catch? Well, if it works right, it shouldn't be. Um, what, what will happen is any debt that's under $500 uh, a single debt, that should no longer appear on someone's credit report. And uh, you, you talked about what, how much uh, 70% of this is medical debt on reports. So we're going to see a huge drop just on the items that are under 50, uh, $500. About 60% of medical debts are under $500. So it's going to have a big impact for consumers. Why are they doing this, though? Is it the kindness of their own hearts, or was uh, someone telling them to do this, or were they about to be told to do this? Well, um, you know, the point of the credit score and therefore the credit reports is to help lenders, potential lenders, decide, is, is this consumer a good person to lend to? And what they found by studying um, past uh, results was that having these small balances on there, which lowered the credit score, really didn't impact the person's credit worthiness. Because these medical debts, as you mentioned, they're typically unexpected one-time events. And that doesn't, so a person may not be able to handle that, but they're still paying their rent, they're paying their phone bill, they're paying um, their utilities and all of that. So there's still good credit, uh, but they just have one problem. Is it also the case that the time period of before you can be reported to a collection agency or a credit agency is now longer or will be longer than it currently is? Right now it's six months and under what uh, it'll be one year um, starting sometime next year with these three um, agencies. And so we all know what it's like getting bills late. Then you're waiting for your, your um, health insurance to see whether they're going to cover it or not. And a lot of times that wasn't worked out within six months. So by it being extended to a year, a lot of things that would have been reported hopefully will be cleared up before that time. And therefore, the consumer doesn't take a date. For things that were reported, how long does that stuff stay on your report and continue to sting you? Well, it lasts seven years, and that's one of the other big changes is if you pay your bill, it's going to come off your credit report. Otherwise, even if you paid it late, it's still there for seven years and hurting your um, credit score. So that's another big change that will help consumers. So for people listening, is there anything they have to do proactively, or is this just going to happen automatically? <laughs> Well, it should all happen automatically. Um, it's supposed to start around July 1st of this year. It will probably take a full year to roll out. So, um, you know, what, what they should do is check their credit report, um, you know, maybe every three months. And by a year from now, if this stuff is still there, 
then they want to contact uh, the credit reporting agencies or the whoever's holding that debt and say, hey, this is still there and it shouldn't be. Dean Kaplan, president of the Kaplan Group Credits and Debt Experts. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia continues its heavy attacks against Ukraine. Russian military says it hit a shopping mall on the outskirts of Kiev. They say it was being used to store rockets. Now this comes as Ukraine has refused an offer to evacuate its troops from the port uh, city of Mariupol. Is Ukraine doing enough to hold off the Russian assault? J.D. Williams is a senior international and defense policy researcher for the RAND Corporation and an expert in military intelligence and Russian and Chinese military strategy. Thanks for being with us. So the, the I guess, conventional wisdom, such as it is at the moment, is that this is becoming a war of attrition. If that's the case, uh, where does this eventually end? Well, thank you for uh, having me. Um, that's... You know, that that's a, a very difficult question. Um, I, I don't think it ends anytime soon as long as Ukraine continues to have some capability and the will to resist. Um, they've essentially kind of adopted a, a, you know, an armadillo or a porcupine strategy where they have um, retreated into the cities. They, they still have military outside the cities, but they're not standing and fighting um, the Russians, which would be to their disadvantage. Um, they're being smart about it. They're, they're engaging where the opportunity exists. And they're presenting the Russians with, you know, the most difficult, you know, one of the most difficult military problems, which is how to um, engage and take over um, very densely populated built up built up areas. The real question becomes um, how long can the Ukrainians endure um, the toll that it's going to take on their civilian population, which is, of course, a a very heavy toll and, and very and very tragic. We've seen what the Russians have been doing to Mariupol, and we were just mentioning it. Why do they want that specific city? So why is it so strategic for them? So um, the the Russian, you know, kind of operational design, you know, had uh, three objectives. Um, the first and the, the the one they were most optimistic about was to to quickly you know make a run at and take over Kiev, at which point you've got the seat of government. You get the government to either surrender or relocate to the western part of the country, and you're you're on your way to achieving your political objective. Um, the second was to secure um, the eastern part of the country where they've already got their foothold with uh, the two breakaway provinces in the Donbass region. And uh, the, you know, the offensives around Kharkiv were, were, were intended to both do that as well as to support the move on Kiev. And then lastly, um, was to secure the southern part of the country, um, basically unify uh, or you know, get the territory that would allow them to unify uh, Crimea with with southern the southern part of Russia, take over the coastline of the Sea of Azov, and eventually you know onto Odessa and the and the, the rest of the Black Sea coast. So right now, Mariupol is one of the urban areas that is resisting. They've had the most success on that southern uh, 
avenue or that southern um, line of of advance. They've had the most success there, but now Mariupol is kind of a strong point or a, um, a hard point that they they can't manage to to take. And so, um, what they're trying to do at this point is sort of consolidate that southern corridor. Then they could release forces to help reinforce other parts of their advance. Do you think that Putin has given up his uh, presumed uh, initial? Uh, aim of destabilizing or actually getting rid of the current government in in Kiev and replacing it with a Russian puppet? Do you think that he's decided that that's not going to work? So he's opted instead for this, uh, you know, strategy of pulverizing the country? Um, no, um, actually, just the opposite. I, I, you know, he's he has kind of held on to that objective. And now that his hope or design of achieving that objective quickly and easily has been thwarted. Now he's resorting to um, a much more um, brutal and uh, deliberate uh, attempt to, to go about it. And, and, you know, with the eventual end state of getting the, the Ukrainian government to capitulate. But you still think he wants to replace the current government? Yes, yes. Um, he, he wants to replace them or, um, you know, move them to the western part of the country and and basically install Russian control over at least the eastern part of the country. J.D. Williams there, senior international and defense policy researcher at the Rand Corporation. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. The refugee crisis out of Ukraine shows no signs of slowing down. The United Nations saying close to three and a half million people have left Ukraine since the war started. Another seven million or so have stayed in the country but left their homes to head to safer places. Is there a safe place within Ukraine anymore? With us again is journalist Phil Idner, who's in Lviv. The air raid sirens becoming a uh, more regular occurrence now. Phil, thanks for being back with us. So so many people on the move, and uh, many of them still, what, passing through where you are, getting to Lviv and then, and then heading someplace else? Yeah, uh, yeah, they're coming through Lviv on the train lines that stop here. It's the closest town to the border, and then they transfer over to uh, minibuses or just uh, other people uh, from around Ukraine or indeed from around uh, Europe uh, have come to the border, and they're, they're now ferrying people across. And so there's still a steady stream of people leaving uh, about a quarter of the entire population uh, of this uh, country of 40 million plus people are said to be displaced because of the conflict. Yeah. So the ones that are already in places like Poland, uh, we've talked to some people who are as far away as Greece and Spain. Uh, I suppose they may end up at some point starting a new life in those countries if they don't eventually go back to Ukraine. But what about all those millions who, as we mentioned, have been displaced from their homes who are still in the country, but they really don't have any homes to go back to. What do they do? Well, so far, the Ukrainian government has been trying to do as much as they possibly can to house them still within Ukraine. There's been a strong push by a lot of the uh, the humanitarian and uh, aid groups uh, internally within Ukraine to try and keep the population here. They are afraid of a kind of uh, brain drain happening, as you say, as a result they may go to a, another country and, and start a new life and, and stay there. There could be a massive uh, Ukrainian diaspora as a result of this. So the government in Kiev is actually trying to 
get as many Ukrainians to stay on Ukrainian territory as they possibly can. But I've heard an awful lot of complaints from uh, some, some within Ukrainian leadership and NGOs and what have you that, that they need more help from the international community here internally within Ukraine, not across the border in Poland, although they're very thankful for the aid that they're getting there. But they'd like to see their citizens stay here. We mentioned the air raid sirens uh, where you are in Lviv are more frequent now. How does how do things compare now to how you know when we were speaking a couple weeks ago and it was relatively peaceful where you were in that city since it is so far to the west? Well, we've we've definitely had a ratcheting up of uh, air raid sirens in the last week or so. I would say that attack. Uh, north of the city where they hit the aircraft repair facility. What was that? It all gets to kind of blur together. I think it was about four days ago, five days ago. Since that happened, yeah, there has been much more activity. Now, the Ukrainian authorities do admit that any time they have anything in the air coming this direction, uh, whether it be a plane or a, a missile, um, it, they will sound that alarm. Uh, even though the center of town here has has not come into uh, come in uh, under uh, any kind of attack, it's mostly been the outlying military sites. But there are a couple of facilities. You know, there's a town north of us and a town south of us that actually do have much more military facilities. So, if if something's coming west, we hear it in Lviv because uh, better safe than sorry. And there has been an awful lot of talk recently from Ukrainian officials indicating that they're afraid that a fourth front could be opened up by uh, the Belarusians, who are north of us, uh, the country that is basically a uh, a, a surrogate for uh, the Kremlin. Uh, Lukashenko, the president there, has been in control since the fall of the Soviet Union. He's basically a puppet of Vladimir Putin's. And uh, the Ukrainians are saying that they're afraid that that uh, they may la- they might launch another offensive and try to drive down into western uh, Ukraine, uh, trying to hit this town of Lutsk, which is about 100 kilometers, about you know, what is that, 60 miles north of me, and that has people on edge here as well. But we are getting repeated air raid sirens. I mean, I get woken up every day. The the, the Russians apparently like to start uh, shooting off ordnance around 6:30 or 7 in the morning. So I've taken the kind of uh, the gallows humor of saying it's my wake-up call. <laughs> Has the thinking changed over the past few days, weeks now, I suppose, on what the final outcome is likely to to look like? Uh, for the Ukrainians, I would say no. Uh, they are determined that they are going to, you know, that they are going to take take back the land that has been ceded uh, uh, to Russia by force. Um, they have always said since 2014 that they intended to take back Crimea. My uh, assessment of the situation here, and this is again my assessment, so I'm, I'm verging on uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, my, putting in, inserting myself here in, in the answer. But um, uh, what my assessment is is that the Russians are highly unlikely to ever relinquish control of Crimea. It's where one of their uh, uh, primary uh, naval fleets is located, and for them it's an existential threat. It would be like us losing uh, access to our bases in Okinawa or Diego Garcia. It would be it would hinder Russia's military naval pro- uh, power significantly. So it's unlikely they're going to give up Crimea. And in order to keep Crimea, they've got to keep the land bridge. So I tell my Ukrainian friends, uh, you know, it's highly unlikely that that's going to happen. But they they are determined to try and grab, you know, get back everything that was taken from them. Um, certainly, they're likely to uh, to 
ultimately pushed most of the Russian uh, territorial gains back to their original borders. But that question of Sevastopol and the Black Sea Fleet is, is going to loom large in any kind of uh, negotiated settlement, which ultimately there will have to be. And President Zelensky on that note has said at least, what, a couple times now, I want to talk to Putin, put us together for that. He has. He has indeed said that. But he's also warned that uh, he's only going to do it if uh, the Russians come to the table in good faith, because if those talks fail, uh, it will lead both sides with with little alternative but to hash it out on the ground and and uh, have a military victory on one side or the other of course the ukrainians believe because of their their morale and their determination to uh, maintain their own homeland that they have the the fighting advantage as long as they're given the weapons but the the concern about a negotiation process is that if the if the russians come to the table uh, in, a, in a in a kind of a stalling process or try and, uh, you know, uh, scuttle the talks themselves so that they could walk away from the table and say, well, the Ukrainians are being unreasonable and try to sway global opinion that way. Uh, Zelensky wants no part of that. That's uh, Phil Itner, journalist who is in Lviv in Ukraine. Phil, thanks again, and as always, for talking to us. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia getting more aggressive in violence in Ukraine, as we were talking about in the previous uh, two segments, making for scary situations for people who are staying in their cities. So we head back now to Kherson, which is a city in southern Ukraine that has been under Russian control. With us now is Olga. She's an English teacher there. She says the situation is getting bad quickly, with Russian troops targeting protesters today. Olga, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us under these very uh, dire conditions. We appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about what is happening in Kherson today. As I mentioned uh, just now, uh, Russian troops apparently are targeting protesters there. Well, yes, you know, uh, every day uh, our Kersonians uh, go uh, to the protest meeting in the central square uh, yesterday, there uh, on Sunday, there were about 4,000 people on the square, and uh, people were protesting against uh, organizing a fake republic in the south of Ukraine, as uh, in Donbass. They want to repeat the same scenario, and uh, every, uh, today, fewer. Uh, Protestants came because uh, it's a working day and the people uh, go to work uh, here. And uh, uh, occupants, uh, they were uh, in the center of the square uh, in front of protesters. And they uh, wanted uh, uh, to uh, humiliate our uh, monument uh, uh, in the center, and the road there that uh, our army kills people, uh, kills kids, and protestants try to uh, rub it off, and they start shooting, uh, and uh, through the bo- uh, through the uh, grenade in the crowd, a few uh, protestants were wounded. Uh, among them was uh, an elderly man who. Who was uh, there was a lot of blood near him. It was uh, a grenade was uh, sound and uh, smoke grenade, 
uh, and the people, of course, uh, were scared uh, with such actions. They want to scare people and to to make them frightened and not to go to the protests. They don't want to listen, to hear that uh, people of Kherson, they don't want to... Uh, to uh, uh, to go to Russia, to Crimea, they want to live uh, in, in independent Ukraine. In they want to be Ukrainians. They are Ukrainians, and they show, uh, they we uh, always show there that we are Ukraine. Kherson is Ukraine, and uh, it's uh, it has to be stopped. And Russians go home, uh, and uh, it's uh, uh, it will go on, and protest will uh, be every day, and. Uh, I don't know, but some some activists are already uh, kidnapped, uh, and uh, people uh, the Russians uh, we call them Russians or uh, fascists. Uh, they go to uh, search uh, houses. They look for uh, activists in Kherson and uh, for uh, veterans of uh, uh, war in Donbas, and uh, uh, people are stopped in the streets. Uh, it's uh, becoming uh, unbearable. Our uh, local uh, tower, uh, TV tower, is blocked. Uh, we don't have uh, Ukrainian channels in Kherson, and we can only watch uh, some uh, watch news on uh, YouTube, uh, the internet only. We get this inform uh, information. And uh, being a teacher. Uh, we, our distance learning uh, go on. Uh, we try to distract people, uh, our pupils from uh, boy around. They are really scared. They don't know about their future. I am a teacher of senior classes, and uh, to to uh, to talk uh, to talk to them, to see their fright and their faces of unaware. They don't know what will be in their future. They don't want to. They want to uh, live in Ukraine. They study in Ukraine. They 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 are in despair. Our kids. We. Uh, let me let me jump in there for a second because it strikes me that, that you're still doing your classes when all this yes. is happening and talking yes. about what you're seeing there on the screen on their faces what what do you say to them as their teacher right now well you know uh, we uh, it's very painful to talk about what we don't talk about what with students we uh, we try uh, to uh, to make them feel quite uh, safe, uh, at least at our lessons, not to think about war. Uh, we just, uh, uh, we don't discuss these questions. They are frightened. They, some of our, uh, my uh, students, uh, they even are scared of going out in their yard, not only in the street, but in their yard. And when I talked with uh, one of the students, he, he, uh, whether he works in the yard or not, he said, no, I'm scared. There are helicopters flying. And uh, it's a 10-year-old boy. Olga, you know. Olga uh, let me find out a little bit about you and, and your family and, and how you are managing to, to deal with all of this. Uh Tell me a little bit about, I, we know you're an English teacher. Tell us a little bit about you and your family and, and what your, your own daily existence is like now. Oh, well, uh, it's, you know, uh, usually half of the day we, uh, 
I live with my uh, son and his uh, wife and uh, uh, their son, my grandson, one-year-old grandson. And we are in search of uh, food every day almost uh, because there are great queues in the uh, shops. Uh, uh, lots of shops are empty. Uh, there is no medication at all. Our pharmacies are completely empty. They don't allow uh, humanitarian, uh, these green corridors or humanitarian humanitarian corridors to bring us medications uh, to her son and uh, lack of insulin, of any painkillers, anything uh, we cannot buy now uh, for heart uh, diseases. So it's a great danger of uh, not not being, uh, not die from bombing, but die because of, we don't have med medication here. And they don't allow these corridors to, uh, to bring the food, uh, these supplies to us. Uh, we, uh, we just uh, try to, uh, you know, my great, uh, uh, well, relaxation is my grandson. Uh, and we try to uh, to live as if nothing is happening, not to show him our, uh, our, uh, our not weakness, but our despair. And uh, is that hard to not show it? Or do you just concentrate on him because he's young enough where he has no idea what's going on. So at least you can get a moment you know, of yes. playing with the kid, it, right? <laughs> it helps. It helps me. Uh, it helps us to uh, to live through uh, all this uh, nightmare. I, I say that nightmare, which uh, occurred uh, just unexpectedly, which uh, we we don't we don't deserve all this. What is happening now? And watching uh, news. Well, uh, when uh, when not with a kid, uh, I I I only either pray or or cry for uh, for his fate i'm uh, already a pensioner though i'm working but uh, i cry for my for my for my son and his wife and for my grandson it's uh, it's really hard to, to look at them and see what future is waiting for, for them in this uh, under this occupation I, uh, and uh... Olga, uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, millions uh, of Ukrainians have left the country. Uh, others, are, of course, are, are without homes but remain in Ukraine. Uh, why have you and your family elected to stay in Ukraine and not and not head west? Well, first, uh, uh, you know, I love my town. I love my house. Uh, I I could not even imagine that it would be such so hard. Though even uh, even now I wouldn't uh, leave. I think leave the country. Uh, only maybe if uh, they really keep stay here. Uh, and uh, organize if they manage to organize under uh, guns uh, this fake republic, I will have to leave. I don't want to live under Russians, and I will never uh, go to school and teach my students uh, on Russian textbooks. What Maybe are only this? What are they, the Russians, saying and doing? We talked about you know how they did break up the protests. They got violence 
yesterday, you said, but when they're in town, are, are you said they were going to go, um, you know, damage one of the... The, the the monuments there are they have they declared it Russia we, we've seen all these different stories of, of them coming in and you know providing fake basically humanitarian aid saying look we're the ones here we're helping you look at us liberate this space I mean what are they doing and saying as since they have you know your city well they don't do anything they uh, while we are protesting they stand uh, they are standing with their full ammunition and guns uh, then uh, yesterday they uh, they tried uh, to cut uh, uh, one group of uh, protestants from other with their war machines and uh, the crowd uh, the whole crowd they just uh, run in front of the, the car uh, this uh, uh, machine and tried to, to push it and uh, it moved back and uh, went away uh, drew away. Uh, they don't say anything. They, uh, they just, uh, uh, I think, that follow some orders uh, which are not understandable for us. They to keep quiet and wait, wait, uh, and uh, they are uh, they are waiting for uh, us to stop resistance, and uh, uh, they want referendum, uh, fake. Of course, fake referendum, because I am sure that uh, Kersonians will never go and uh, vote for uh, this independent republic, as they call it. Uh, they don't say they. Uh, some people say that uh, who talk to Russians, they and ask them why, why did you come here and what what are you doing here? You can you have to leave. They say we have nowhere to live. We cannot go back because we will be uh, uh, arrested. We cannot uh, uh, give in because we will be arrested. They have no choice. It's, uh, it's what I have heard uh, from people who talk to them. Olga, uh, a lot of people in Ukraine have uh, or had, I suppose, uh, family and friends in Russia. Do you? No. No. Okay. I don't have I don't have friends uh, and don't have family, uh, anybody there in Russia. Uh, and but again, uh, my uh, colleague, they uh, some colleagues have uh, relatives, very close relatives in Russia. And when they told on the phone, described what is going on uh, in Ukraine, they don't trust. They say that we uh, we lie and uh, that uh, we we say uh, it cannot be true that their TV shows different picture and they trust their propaganda. Do they actually believe these colleagues of yours with friends or family in Russia, those people in Russia are buying the, the lies they're being told that somehow Ukraine is the, the aggressor? Yeah, they uh, they they trust. Uh, most of them trust. You know, uh, I'm uh, I I lived in the Soviet Union, and I know how the this machine works, uh, how it it is brainwashed, how people can be brainwashed, and uh, I understand I I can understand them. 
they trust what uh, they uh, they are told they don't want to listen to any other point of view uh, they uh, tried many uh, my my friends my colleagues they tried to explain there in russia what is going on here they don't trust they they cannot believe it we are evil uh, and we are fascists we are nazis here and uh, uh, they they trust their tv they, they even don't want to uh, to uh, to find the well to, to to watch the videos which the people our people send them they say that it's uh, this uh, uh, some uh, uh, pictures which specially uh, uh, were uh, like performed for uh, for propaganda from ukraine they they really think so do you think that breaks at some point or are they so far down that road that, that they're not going to be able to come around? Well, I know for sure one thing that uh, uh, for me, for me, there there will be no understanding, forgiving what they have done to our country, to my country, and uh, uh, how they will live with it, uh, how they will celebrate uh, uh, if they, if they win. But I, I'm sure that they will not. But, but, how, they, but, but let me ask you a question, though, because uh, you're a teacher and, and you're saying you try to avoid uh, talking about the war with, with students. But they are, of course, at a young age. They are at an impressionable age. Um, how do you avoid as a teacher making sure that they're not taught to hate, even though the situation is so bad in your country and what the Russians are doing to you and the world is recognized that is, is such a horrible thing. Nonetheless, as a teacher, I think you would agree that you don't want students to grow into adults filled with hatred, right? Don't you think uh, they uh, see, they uh, they know the truth. They know that kids, uh, that Small kids are kids. That maternity house is bombed. That schools are destroyed. That they they know everything. Do you think that they will they will forget it? No, there's a difference, of course, between forgetting uh, and 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 forgiving and and forgiving and 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 harboring hatred for the rest of their lives. Do you think that those very impressionable children? will grow up, and maybe they will, I don't know. You know your students certainly better than I do. Do you think that they will harbor that hatred in their own hearts, in their own souls, for the rest of their lives? Or will they be able at some point to forgive? I cannot I cannot tell for, uh, for all, all students, uh, but uh, uh, those who uh, think, who uh, see, and who uh, uh, is aware of what is going on around, I think that they will hate i i think so it's a, it's my point of view because i will ne- uh, uh, what i how i think i know that uh, my par- my parents uh, uh, after the war uh, with nazis uh, with fascists uh, lots uh, for 80 years uh, about 80 years uh, uh, till now nobody forgave and for, uh, and uh, and forget what was what was done to our country and to Ukraine by Nazis. 
It's very hard to forgive. It's very hard to forget. And uh, uh, our ruined cities, our Mariupol, which is 90% destroyed, do you think that our kids, they will pay, they will still pay for building this and they will be doing, uh, reconstructing everything, recovering? Their psychic is already ruined. They are now afraid because they are small. They want to live. They want to live as they have used to live in our country, free, happy, uh, in uh, dignity. And now they will be suppressed and they will be shut down by Russians because they don't allow any free exp uh, uh, any freedom even attempt to, to be free it is suppressed olga there english teacher in uh Kursan. olga thank you so much for talking to us please stay safe you and the family uh, the best from from us to you and, and we hope we can speak again that's in depth for the day we'll be back tomorrow